0: From understanding a global economic crisis
1: to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. Welcome to the program. Well, the topic that everybody wants to talk about continues to dominate the headlines, which is interest rates and inflation cost of living. And now the CEOs of all the major banks have come out and said they are worried about their mortgage clients defaulting on their loans. Scotiabank actually says tens of thousands of their clients could default on their loans. They're saying 2.5% of them are at risk right now of not being able to make their mortgage payments. Why? Because interest rates have gone up so much in the last year, in 2022 alone, interest rates rose 400 basis points, or four percentage points, and so that means money that you uh, you were paying towards your mortgage, if you were in a variable rate mortgage, more of that was going towards interest. Just to give you a little bit of an idea, the average mortgage in Canada is $500,000. This is according to a mortgage broker that I recently spoke to. She crunched the numbers for me. She says. Back in January 2022, the banks were offering 2.45% as a variable rate mortgage. So you would have thought, looked at that and said, wow, I can afford that and gotten into that mortgage and bought that house at the top of the market because January, February was the top of the real estate market. And you would have paid $1,713 a month to service that half a million dollar mortgage. So if you're in a variable rate mortgage, what happens is, is that your payments don't change, but more of your money starts to go towards interest and less towards the principal. And if you, uh, at one point, all of your money will be going towards uh, interest and nothing towards principal, and you will reach what's called the trigger rate. And when you reach that trigger rate, the bank is going to call and say, you've got to increase your payments because right now your principal isn't going down and your interest is actually making your original loan Higher. Now, if you fast forward to today, that same $500,000 loan at today's interest rates, which is four percentage points higher, is costing $1,100 more, more than $2,800. So you can see how much affordability has changed. Now, granted, home prices have also come down, so you don't have to borrow as much. So that has to be factored in. But for somebody who bought their house, locked in, and said, I'm going variable, Right. So locked in doesn't always mean fixed. It means you're locking into a decision or I'm going adjustable rate mortgage. Adjustable rate mortgages, whenever the interest rate goes up, the bank sends you correspondence and says your payments are going up. So your amortization never changes. You started with a 30 year amortization. Interest rates go up. They adjust it so you stay on that 30 year amortization. And for those individuals, they have seen their payments increase month to month. To month. And in some cases, people have seen their payments actually double. And so this is the situation we find ourselves in. And on top of all of this, employment numbers that came out recently showed that the uh, Canadian economy added 100,000 jobs in the month of December. And so that means Bank of Canada looks at that and says, well, the economy is doing fine because there's tons of people who are working tens of jobs that are getting filled, and tens of jobs that still need to be filled. So we can continue to raise interest rates to curb inflation, because that's what needs to happen in order to get the economy in control. Inflation cannot stay at 6.8%. We don't have the latest inflation numbers for December, but 6.8% is the numbers for November. And that is about more than triple of where the Bank of Canada wants it to be. So we got a long way to go until we get to normal. And so this new news from Scotiabank saying that the that they are worried about 2.5% of their customers, their mortgage customers defaulting on their loans is a really scary Idea. We're really good in Canada about paying when it comes to paying our mortgages. Our default rates have been well below 1% historically, and they still are. It's not like all of a sudden our default rates have gone up like they did, for example, in the United States in 2008, 2009, where default rates skyrocketed. People who were walking away from their homes, literally leaving their keys on the counter saying, it's no longer worth it for me. I'm just going to go bankrupt because I can't afford to make these payments. And this home price has fallen too much for me to uh, justify continuing to pay this mortgage. A lot of people have also found themselves in a situation where they bought a house off the plan. So two years ago, went up to wherever they were going to be and bought a house off the plan. Developer gave them a, a gave them a cost. And then so much changed in two and a half years. So the cost of uh, raw materials has gone up. So the cost to build that home has actually gone up for the developers. So they had to increase prices for that reason. Inflation, so the cost of hiring people, the cost of uh, getting things done has gone up on top of that. So they're they're now dealing with employees that say, I need to be paid more if you want me to continue to do this job because life is getting so expensive. So their labor costs have gone up too. And then on top of that, Interest rates are up. So, if the developer has taken that money uh, or borrowed money to do, to, to finish that development and then waiting for you to then pay for that home or that condo, uh, that money is not worth as much because they're paying more and more interest on it until you pay them back the money that you signed that you are going to to pay for that home. And so what ends up happening, developer comes to you and says, you got to pay more. And that is something that a lot of Canadians are now uh, dealing with. They're they're saying that it's unfair. It is an unfair practice. I mean, this is what hedging your bets means. You sell something today to buy in the future, and you are guaranteed that price, regardless of whether prices go up and down, because it's gone the other way too. Where people have locked into locked into something, and uh, the developer has actually made money in the end, so that you you know down the road you could have bought that same property for less. So today on the show we're going to talk about student financial wellness and how it's important to keep that top of mind when a young person is going off to university. And we're also going to talk about the new normal. So after you graduate, you go off and you go into your work world, or you're already working. Um, this new normal that we find ourselves in. in Long term, how can we be successful? At remote work, because most of us are not very good at it, even myself included. I mean, I've worked from home for 10 plus years, but not like this, not always from home. I still spent a couple of days out of my home. So, this was all new to me as well. This is not a normal working condition. And so, as we now move into our post pandemic life, what does that work life look like? We're going to cover all these subjects and more. I'm Rubina Ahmed Haq, and this is For What It's Worth.
0: You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Hawk.
1: Anyone who has been to university or college can relate to this student debt. Uh, No matter how far you go back, students have always graduated on average with some kind of debt uh, because they pursued higher education and education in this country has always been Expensive, And it's getting even more expensive. Right now, the average debt that students are carrying, according to Statistics Canada, is $28,000. So that's a four year undergraduate degree that you graduate from with 10s of 1000s of dollars of debt that you have to deal with before you can think about anything else, saving for retirement, saving for a rainy day all these things that myself as a personal finance journalist i'm always talking about these things these things seem impossible because of this student debt that is weighing you down and this brings up the topic of financial wellness for young people those who are in school who are studying and how they can take care of their financial wellness while they are in university or college to not get into a situation where they're graduating with more debt than is necessary, and that they're always keeping their financial wellness top of mind. Uh, To talk about this and more, we're joined by Marianne Mushiri. She leads the student banking offers with Simply Financial. Marianne, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what area are students particularly suffering
2: in, especially when it comes to their personal finances? Definitely. So the majority of young Canadians are saying they're worried about keeping up with living expenses, as we all are seeing, but which, of course, as you mentioned, is hitting our students a lot harder, is the rate of inflation and how that's been impacting things like our cost of food. Myself, I can see it, a carton of milk or eggs has gone up substantially. That plus, of course, when you look at rent prices going up as well, that seems to be what has become top of mind for students in trying to make ends meet.
1: And this has always been the case, students sort of like living, learning to live more frugal, learning to be a little bit better with their money, because in most cases, we're not working when we are studying, uh, doing post-secondary studies because we're so busy uh, trying to get all of that homework and all that work done. Uh, many students are graduating, like I mentioned, with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. If a student listening right now who's maybe starting their first year of university, what can they do to alleviate some of that?
2: I would say look around at all the opportunities that exist uh, within the ecosystem. So, for example, I myself, when I went to university, applied for grants and scholarships. And when I look around in the industry today, across from schools, associations, even uh, banks like Simply, offer scholarship programs that students can apply for. And that can be a huge help in alleviating some of that buildup of debt. The other thing, of course, is looking at expenses. To your point, students do have to live more frugally. So looking at ways to minimize those expenses and looking at day-to-day expenses to say, okay, what can we do here to save uh, a few dollars on, you know, for example, uh, the cost of off-campus housing versus on-campus or transportation? Those are areas in which we can minimize housing costs as well. When you're looking at other things as well for students to consider, it's looking at student offers in the market. A lot of retailers and stores offer student discounts. So taking advantage of that to get that extra savings really does help. Every little bit goes a long way in the end when you're looking at it day over day, year over year.
1: The one thing that uh, is different from when I went to university, I'm not sure if this this is is the case for you, is that there was no social media pressure. There was no pressure for, you know, what is my friend doing at Queen's University? I went to Carleton. Or what is my friend's doing, you know, at at UBC? I had no idea. And so there was no no comparison sort of uh, situation happening. I can see how now there is a lot more pressure for students to present themselves in a different way because they're seeing so many pressures from social media. And they may think to themselves, you know, what if I just get a part time job, then I'll have a little bit of extra money so I can buy the same clothes that my friend has that, that, that they're showing on Instagram or another social media site. I mean, you know, what advice would you have for, for a young person who's thinking I've got this full load at university, but I'm thinking maybe I could work maybe 20 hours a week and make that extra cash to pay for the things that I want to have?
2: I think it makes a lot of sense when they think about how they want to do that. So there's a lot of great jobs available on campus. You can become uh, I personally was a tour guide on campus for prospecting students. That was income that I was able to make while in school with a flexible schedule that fit within my course load. So I think there's lots of opportunities there to have a side gig where you can make some money, get some experience in the work industry and see what that's like, as well as help to pay off some of those expenses. Yeah, I had a student job as well. I was I worked with the AV
1: department, so my job was to just go into lecture halls and set up the the audiovisual uh, equipment, and then at the end, tear it all down and bring it back to the office. And you're right, it paid uh, a little bit better than any minimum you know a minimum wage job would, and it was easy because it was right on campus. I didn't have to go anywhere, and uh, in, in many cases, I could do some things that would help my studies. Like if I had to pop into the library or buy something from the bookstore, I could do that because I was on campus uh, the whole time time. There's been a a big change uh, at the federal level for student loans, at least federal student loans. Uh, These are the loans that you take out when you first go to university. um, And they are interest free while you are in school. But in the past, they had interest added to them. Once you graduated six months after you graduated, they would incur interest. But that's now uh, that's now been frozen. Uh, How will
2: this help students? So you're right. It was as a part of that fiscal update on November 3rd that the federal government announced the elimination on the interest on federal student and apprentice loans starting this April. And personally, I think every little bit helps, right? So two more years of not having to pay, those, um, pay off the interest off those loans is value. It's value to students.
1: There has been some criticism that this is only going to encourage students to take on more debt, but I think it's actually going to help those young people who are graduating just get out of the debt that they're in quicker because they still have to stay on a, a payment schedule. It's not like they can just, you know, take 10, 20 years to pay it, pay it off. They have to stay on a payment schedule. Uh, otherwise, they will be penalized. So there, there is that understanding that you have to pay it back, but just that there won't be any extra interest added to it. You know, when we think about uh, young people, we don't necessarily think about financial wellness. You know, usually we we attribute that to those who are uh, have mortgages and maybe paying for their kids' education and uh, those who are close to retirement and how important it is to keep financial wellness top of mind, which it is for them, for sure. But why is it important to teach financial wellness uh, to students, especially if, say, right now you're listening and you've got a, a young person that's he, a, a young child who's heading off to university next year. How can parents recognize how important financial wellness is and, and teach their kids about that before they go off into the world of post-secondary uh, school?
2: I think parents can relate it to that major assignment or paper that's due for students in a few weeks if they manage it and plan it accurately over that period, it's a lot less painful than waiting till the very end and rushing and staying up all night to get it done. So when you break it down like that and tell students, you know what? that's the foundational years set yourself up for success know what you want to do in you know once you graduate school what is that going to look like and then say break it down to how much money am I going to spend every day and how much money do I have and when you do that and you explain to them or help them understand that just that basics and make it less scary I think it goes a long way so I think parents can definitely break it down make it relatable to them to what they know you know papers term assignments and then break it down so it's not as scary to say you know it's the basics of money in, money out. We can help you build those healthy habits so that they can then set themselves up so that when they graduate, it is a little less of a debt that they're looking at. And there's a lot of information online that's available that they can leverage, whether it's webinars, course material on financial literacy, even simply.com has a number of free resources and blog posts for students to take a look at, to educate them. I think we do have a lot of information around us that parents can leverage to help their kids learn more about it for the
1: first time as an 18 year old, you may be on your own managing your money on your own. And in some cases, especially if you're taking student loans, you have you have tens of thousands of dollars deposited into your bank account that you are now expected to manage. And and it's really important that the young people have the tools to know that this money is for this is allotted for this and this is for that. Uh, But even when it comes to the things that uh, you might think are worthy, like course selection, and certain classes that may seem interesting, uh, you may students may be spending money on things that aren't necessary. Talk to me a little bit about, even though it may come under the, the umbrella of education, that you still may be spending money that is not necessarily well spent.
2: That's a great point. So I would say, you know, again, tracking their expenses, they're able to see where their money is going and if it's a value. Again, personally, for me, I when I started doing that, I saw the few dollars a day I could save that made a big difference. Um, again, banking, for example, is another great example where, you know, simply offers no fee options and student uh, payback uh, savings of up to $700. So when you start tracking that, whether it's on an app or an Excel, because I used Excel back in the day, there were no apps. Um, it was a great way for me to see that, you know, when my money's going, for example, to your point, to that really expensive sweater, I didn't need to spend my money on that sweater. I could have spent it on a much cheaper option, saved some money there, and then use that money for something else that I needed, for example, buying a textbook or something like that. So I think that management of, you know, using Excel, using an app to track it really Bring that attention or that awareness to where is my money going, and how am I spending it, and is it the most effective way for me to use my money?
1: Marian, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, talking about financial wellness when it comes to students. I think it's really important for young people to have those tools available to them uh, when they're managing their money for the first time on their own, and in some cases thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars on their own. I think we underestimate um, how overwhelming that can be when a person arrives on campus or is in their first or second year of university or college and and on their own for the first time. So
2: thank you so much. Oh, no problem. It was great to speak with you on it. It's definitely an area that uh, we're focusing in on as well. Thank you so much. That's Marianne Moshiri. She
1: leads the student banking offers with Simply Financial. And a really important point, Simply Financial sent me a list of things that students uh, can do to improve their financial uh, wellness, is to get smart about course selection. So we often, when we're in university, are asked to do some electives. So do electives that are actually going to help you. And I love this. Pick a personal finance course. Most university or colleges have those available. Uh, pick a personal finance course, you're going to get a credit for your education and you're also going to learn something more about your money. So you've got sort of a double, uh, double benefit there, because you're learning, and you're also building a lifelong skill of just being better at your money management. When we come back, we're going to talk about the future of work and how the future is hybrid and remote. For many of us, even though we've been remote and hybrid for the last three years, we're still not experts at it. So how can we set up ourselves so that we can really excel at hybrid work? For the long term. I'm Rabina Ahmed Hawk, and this is for what it's worth.
0: You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk.
1: Work has changed so much in the last three years since we began, since the pandemic began. Uh, In the beginning, we were many of us, millions of Canadians were asked to go home, work from our kitchen tables, work from our home offices if we had one. And it was a real shift for so many of us who are just used to working nine to five in the office. Uh, I did that for many, many years. I took the commuter train in, always saw the same people on the train, same people home because we all had the same kind of schedule. But the world has changed a lot in the last three years. Many of us don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that. I feel like that sucked a lot of time that I could be doing other things with and as we now move into what we are now calling our new normal hybrid work and remote work is becoming more and more acceptable that stigma that taboo subject of saying working from home and people think it's just code for watching television all day that's gone I think that's one of the major major pluses of the pandemic is that workers have proven that they can work from home successfully and that they are not watching tv all day they're not netflixing all day as if that's even a verb to talk about the future of work and what it may look like we're joined by the ceo of iwg wayne berger iwg is a global flexible and co-working space company welcome to the program wayne hi everybody
0: thanks for having us
1: yeah, uh, I really have always been interested in co-working spaces because I think that they are a, just a natural progression from the way that we used to work to the way that we now want to work. Uh, t- talk to me a little bit first about just generally from your perspective, how has our attitude on commuting changed?
0: Well, Rabina, I, I think you absolutely nailed it at the top of the uh, the segment. It is amazing how the attitude of commuting and work and workplace has changed uh, dramatically over the last three years. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of points here. First three quick stats. What we're seeing right now when it comes to work in workplace and the attitudes of Canadian workers and employers is I think really explicit. 90% of Canadian workers are demanding the ability to work flexibly throughout their work week. And it's because of what's happened over the last three years. Now, how are Canadian companies responding well, 88% of Canadian companies are, are offering now some form of flexible working policy or guidelines. And they're it's all over the map. I'm sure we'll dive into that a little bit. The last piece I want to make mention is, um, is a study that was recently released by ADP Canada that have found that their respondents are now prioritizing work-life balance as a top factor over pay for remaining in their current workplace or when they're exploring new opportunities. So when you think about the commuting and the attitude around commuting, how that's changed over the last three years, well, number one, it's the key driver towards flexible working. And it's the most explicit pain point that today's workers are determined to eliminate. Three years ago, traveling to an office five days a week was frankly just part of the job. It's what you mentioned earlier, it was the habit that was rarely even reconsidered or challenged. It was what we always did, a habit that has been instituted since the Industrial Revolution. And and frankly, the pandemic and technology have been the two biggest drivers of change, demonstrating that commuting to and from an arbitrary office every day is now considered unproductive, it's unnecessary, it's costly, it's bad for the environment, And it's the key driver of what's creating change amongst employees leaving current companies who aren't offering flexible working. So the attitude's gone from a novel idea to the point now where the biggest enemy is the commute. People want to eliminate the commute.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even before the pandemic hit, uh, the WHO had declared burnout an occupational phenomenon. And part of that burnout was because of the commute. Uh, We were just getting used to this one and a half, two hour commute into work each way. So that's like three hours, four hours of your day in your car or in a a commuter bus or train uh, that you could be spending doing anything else, taking your kids to school, having dinner with your wife, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, and this was sort of the solution we'd all been looking for like this is how we could work technology like you said has brought us now the opportunity to work from anywhere and and that means that you can get those hours back but a lot of us don't want to work at home i gotta be honest wayne i'm sick of being at home i don't really want to work from home anymore but i don't want to commute in an hour and a half to my job either what are some options for those who just don't want to work at their kitchen table but they want to get a full day's work done close to home
0: well, I'm, I'm glad you said it because it is important to know that hybrid isn't home. A lot of people are relating this idea of hybrid or flexible working as home-based working, but the reality is it's the furthest, it's, it's one element, but it's not working from home. It's actually about flexibility. Only 15% of Canadians, so 85% of Canadians feel the way you do and the feel the way I do. They, they do not want to work from home solely. Only 15% of Canadians want to work from home five days a week. It's really about working closer to home. And it's about having flexibility to work from a place best suited towards what we, what's required of them that day and eliminating this lengthy commute. You nailed it, 90 minutes is common. The average commute in Toronto is 84 minutes. It is remarkable how long we can spend driving aimlessly or traveling aimlessly. So what are some of the common options? Well. The biggest option we're seeing now, because people are not interested in working from home, they want to work closer to home, is giving them this option to work at a place close to home. The simplest way is a membership to a co-working location that's geographically located within their neighborhood. It's the best solution. Now, why is that a great solution? There's a few reasons why. One, it's accessible. So, if you look today at the co working or flexible workspace industry in Canada, there are roughly about 450 locations across Canada. Just the company I work for alone today operates over 200 flexible workspace co working locations throughout 75 cities in Canada. And those are cities like Toronto, right through to Victoria, right through to towns the size of 15,000 people like Truro, Nova Scotia. Why is that so important? Well, a co working location gives employees and workers accessibility to a well-designed workspace. It gives them secure IT for data and communications. And it also gives them accessibility to people. You know, what's interesting is the reason why people don't necessarily want to work from home solely is because it's isolating. To your point, people like separation of home and work and people want to be around other people. There's accessibility to other people when you work in a co-working environment. So having access to flexible workspace or a co-working environment that's five to 15 minutes, walk, bike ride, or short commute is the desired point of what, what workers are looking for in Canada. Now, there are some other alternatives. Now, it's if, if somebody has a functional, dedicated space in their homes, it's a good option to have an office where they can enter and escape from when they need separation from home, home and work, that can be a viable option. But the reality is, as we continue to grow within our country, um, having access to that amount of space where you have dedicated workspace in your house, it becomes more and more of a challenge. So what we're currently seeing right now is the best option is to have access to shared workspace, flexible workspace, co-working that's five to 15 minutes from their house, gives people the chance to, leave their home, start their day with a pre-morning routine, and head to a place that's desirable, well-designed, productive, and accessible both to people and the tools they need.
1: Yeah, because um, not everyone, considering where real estate prices are right now, can afford a home that is three, four bedrooms and has a home office. And, uh, you know, also all the bells and whistles that you would need to create a professional working space. Uh, you know, often even just having a room where the door closes is just not possible. You may have to work in the corner of your living room. And after a while, because then you spend Saturday afternoon or evening in that same living room, it can get a little overwhelming to think that I'm never really out of this space. Uh, One Mm -hmm. thing I used to do, Wayne, when the pandemic first hit is that we would make, my husband and I would make a a routine to walk to the coffee shop, buy a coffee and walk back just to sort of separate ourselves from, you know, the home that we sleep in to the home that we work in. And that does that. That co-working space creates a little bit of that separation, even though it is super close to home. Um, We're now in this new normal that we talked a lot about during the pandemic and companies are adjusting. Some of them are going back on their word of, of hybrid. They're actually bringing employees back. But like you said, majority are open to the idea of work from home. What do you see the new normal looking like Uh, going forward? Like, where do you see work? Where do you what do you see the workplace looking like maybe three, four years from now, once we've settled into this?
0: I think a few things. Number one, the biggest thing you're going to see over the next couple of years, flexible or hybrid work, it's just going to be known as work. That's all that will be work. What we're going to see the biggest trends we're seeing happening immediately right now and that's going to continue to play over the next three to four years are people will really start to shift from the centric work environment. People will work from multiple places every day, depending on actually what's required on that day. So when they, they open up and they take a look at their calendar, what type of meetings they have, what projects they have, what's due, what's required of them from their company, their workplace will actually then be dedicated towards those projects. Part of the day, maybe from home, maybe a couple of hours if it's head down work, Part of the day will be from a co-working location that's five to 15 minutes from their house. Part of the day may be at their client's office or at their current office, whatever that looks like for the organization. The workplace will shift to multiple places depending on what's required. It will become more ubiquitous and fluid than we've ever seen. The second that we're seeing, second theme trend that we're seeing is technology. If you think about what we're doing today, it is remarkable what we're able to achieve utilizing technology, the tools in place today were, are far more advanced than where we were even five years ago. But the tools of uh, that are coming within the next three to five years has, is dramatically shifting how we engage together as workers and as people. Technology will play a greater daily role as those productivity and collaboration tools like Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Slack, Meta for Business, they all will continue to improve. What we're seeing on the horizon right now, Rabina, is frankly remarkable. There are tools being released by Google, which creates a 4D environment in which you and I can sit together, being on other ends of the globe, but feel like we're actually in the same room together. That tool, Is ready to go. Now, is it ready from an economies of scale perspective across all businesses? Not quite yet. But the reality is that technology is advancing at a far greater rate. If you think about 20 years ago, a cell phone was a prized benefit provided only to top company executives. If you had a Blackberry in 2002, you were the coolest person in the room. Like it was the pinnacle. Today, a, a cell phone is an absolute requirement for any type of role. So we're seeing technology continue to play a greater and greater role, enabling the ability for people to connect and work together. And because technology is a key driver, teams, frankly, are becoming more geographically disparate. So even a couple of years ago, when a position was posted, that position would traditionally be posted to, um, to work in the city where the headquarter was based but now what's happening is teams are becoming more fluid they're more geographic disparate companies are hiring across a broader pool of talent their talent base is opening up to a greater degree than ever before so now companies are building teams and are bringing teams together across across cities across provinces even across countries so now we're seeing teams continue to shift and that's going to require organizations to ensure they they train their leadership organization and their managers to be able to work and act differently. It's shifting organizations, become more of a results-based, results-based um, focus. So these are the these are some of the new norms that we're starting to see really come into play. Technology is going to be that key, key driver and enabler. And then if you look eight to 10 years from now, Well, frankly, it's like as you start to bring the metaverse into play, you really start to shift where you're bringing together technology as like as an equal environment for living and working uh, as it is a a, an actual like physical environment. And the last piece I'll make mention um, that you're going to continue to see, which is becoming a real driver. The environment will be the biggest theme moving forward. And it's really shifting workers away from just the central business districts, which are going to require cities to really reshift their downtown business scores. The 15-minute city is really continuing to drive this dramatic shift in how people live and work. And because of that, vacancy rates are continuing to increase. 2024 is the lar- is, is a year in which the largest percentage of corporate company leases come up for renewal in Canada. Uh, and you're going to see a dramatic shift as companies continue to rationalize their real estate portfolio, moving their employees to access more flexibility, which drives more into co-working and frankly reduces the amount of dependency on traditional conventional leasing. That's going to require developers to really start to think about How do we shift cities and how do they shift their investment to support the changing nature of how people live and work?
1: Well, Wayne, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much uh, for always keeping us up to date on what's happening uh, in uh, the co-working space and and what your company is doing to provide a a solution for hybrid workers. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today and talking to us about the future of work.
0: Well, thanks for taking the time and look forward to getting together next in any work environment that that we deem necessary because that's the futures, which is great. Thanks. That's thanks right.
1: Thank you. Uh, Wayne Berger is the CEO of IWG. IWG is a global, flexible and co-working space company. When we come back, I'm going to talk about weddings, the cost of weddings and how inflation is forcing some couples to really cut down on their guest list. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck and this is For What It's Worth. <laughs>
0: From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina Ahmed-Hawk. The
2: best things in life are free.
1: One thing that's always fascinated me is the cost of weddings. How much we're willing to spend to throw a party. For the one day in our life where we're going to declare our love to the person we've already kind of declared our love to, right? When you get engaged, you do declare your love that day. When you start dating and you say, hey, let's be exclusive, you declare your love that day. But then we have this party in front of all our family and our friends, some of them not so family and not so friendly, uh, people that we are forced to invite. I'm speaking from personal experience. Um, and we spend, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars back in 2009. I remember my husband and I, Our cost, the cost of our wedding was $30,000. And that seemed like an enormous, and it still is, an enormous amount of money to spend on a day. We did have a couple of events here and there around there, but really it was on the wedding. And couples are now, and I think this is smart, are really getting fed up with paying these costs to have this party in the end just so that they can say, you know, so many people came and so many people got fed and watered and went home and had great things to say about the couple. And in some cases, they don't necessarily have anything to say. A lot of people I saw at my wedding or I invited to my wedding, I haven't seen them since that day. I haven't seen them for 13 years. And I think back and I wonder, why did I invite them? if they were never going to keep in contact with me after that day. So now with inflation, cost of living, and just generally being a bit smarter when it comes to how we spend our cash, couples are opting for micro weddings. So these are weddings uh, for 30 people and less. So the people that you really, really want at your wedding uh, are the ones that you invite. And you obviously completely cut down on your costs. When you do that, you don't have to spend as much money and you can pick different venues. You don't have to, you know, rent a big hall or get sort of this really expensive venue. You can do it in a restaurant or even in someone's backyard or at at your home. And this is something that throughout the pandemic we were forced to do, right? We couldn't even get together in a big way. So even when things opened up slightly in the middle, Uh, regulations were, restrictions were that you could only have X amount of people gathered. And so that forced people to think about smaller weddings. And so this is becoming more and more of a trend uh, where people are just giving up on this idea of having these big weddings, spending tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, There's a new TD annual love and money survey of American couples, and it was conducted back in November, 2021. So really at the depths of the pandemic, and it found that almost a third were planning on having a micro wedding. And this is really even before all this happened with inflation and cost of living. This was just what we had learned from having smaller gatherings for our wedding day and even before interest rates started going up, so the cost of borrowing. And so that really does speak to how young people are now approaching this big day and approaching um, how they're going to celebrate their love and no longer giving into all the pressures that maybe were there before, like how I felt quite pressured to invite a lot of people that... In the end, I didn't really care to have them there. And I look at the photos and I think, who is this person? So avoiding all of that, have a micro wedding. You could spend a lot less money. You can use that money for something else. And the people who really mean something to you are going to be there uh, on your big day. That's my little bit of advice from someone who's been married more than a decade. I mean, I'm not saying I'm some sort of expert on marriage, but that's something when I look back, I wish I had just cut that guest list down and done things a little bit differently. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the program. Uh, I hope you learned something for what it's worth is all about teaching uh, us about personal finance, about understanding our work better. When you walk away from this show, I want you to be armed with more information than when you started listening to it. So I hope that is the case for you today. Uh, student wellness, financial wellness, top of mind. If you got a young person going off to university or if you are a young person going off to university, Make sure that you understand your money and how to take care of it. And when it comes to work, it doesn't mean you got to work from home if that's remote work. It can mean you can go to a co-working space. You can find a different location to work from. You can make your workday more interesting than just being at your kitchen table. I'm Rubina Ahmed This is For What It's Worth. I look forward to talking to you next week.